Section 48 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 45, The Early Tudors by James Gardner, Part 3. Early in 1513, Louis XII and his Queen Anna Brittany had in vain attempted to break up the Confederacy against France by offering their second daughter, René, to the Prince of Castile, with the Duchy of Brittany as her dowry. Anna Brittany died in January 1514, but Louis renewed the offer and appeared to meet with less resistance. There was indeed always a French party in Flanders, and though Margaret of Savoy was strongly opposed to a breach of faith with England in this matter, she was overborne by her father Maximilian, who under the influence of Ferdinand invented excuses for putting off the match with Mary, which plainly proved there was no intention of concluding it. But Henry was less of a dupe than men supposed. He had one counsellor, especially not so famous, yet as he was soon to become, whose eye was keen to detect false dealing and treachery abroad, and who well knew in what direction to look for a remedy. The abilities of Thomas Wolsey as a diplomatist had already been discovered by Henry VII, who made him his chaplain and also Dean of Lincoln, and though the new king at the commandment of his reign was more largely under the influence of others. It was Wolsey whose energies had planned and organised the naval and military expeditions of the last three years. In fact, he was rapidly becoming in most matters the king's sole counsellor. He accompanied Henry in the French campaign, and after the capture of Tournay the king, obtained for him by papal bull the bishopric of that city, the see being newly vacant, though another bishop had been nominated by France. In February 1514, the more substantial bishopric of Lincoln was also bestowed upon him, and before many months were over, the death of Cardinal Bainbridge at Rome enabled the king to advance him from Lincoln to the archbishopric of York. Under Wolsey's direction, it was not difficult for Henry to chastise the perfidy of Ferdinand and the instability of Maximilian. While King Henry, deserted by his allies, seemed resolute to carry on the war alone, secret negotiations were opened with France through the prisoners left in English hands by the Battle of the Spurs, and there was no enemy whom France was so anxious to conciliate as England. The death of Anne of Brittany cleared the way for Louis to enter the state of matrimony again at the age of 52 and Henry had no scruple about giving him the hand of his own sister Mary, a beautiful girl of eighteen. On August 7th there were concluded in London a treaty of peace with France, and another for the marriage, a pledge being given by French commissioners for the payment of one million gold crowns by half-yearly instalments of 50,000 francs. The marriage was actually celebrated at Abbeville on October 9th. This new alliance with France astonished the world and spread serious alarm in many places. Henry, 
certainly harboured deep designs in connection with it, especially against his father-in-law, while Louis considered that he would now be able most effectively to prosecute his claim to the Duchy of Milan, but Europe had scarcely had time to consider what might become of these arrangements when they were virtually at an end. Louis XII died on January 1st, 1515, and as he left no sons, the Count of Angermaine succeeded him as Francis I. There was indeed no disposition at all events on the part of Francis to break off the amity with England, but it was clear from the first that that young and chivalrous king would be a rival and not a help to Henry in his European schemes. The embassy sent to him from England on his accession was headed by Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, in whom the hope had been raised of marrying the widowed French queen. Unfortunately, for the other purposes of the Duke's mission, Francis found out his secret, and after putting him to the blush, promised every possible assistance in the matter he had most at heart. The king was as good as his word, but the impatience of the young couple who faced strong opposition in England, induced them to be married in France before they left. On their return, Suffolk was in serious danger from the indignation of King Henry and his nobles, but by Wolsey's intercession he procured his pardon. Suffolk's indiscretion had in fact entailed the failure of some secret diplomacy with which he had been charged, and succeeding ambassadors could not remedy the result of his mismanagement. Francis renewed the treaty made with Suffolk's predecessor and took his departure for Italy in order to assert his claim to Milan, evading an inconvenient demand that he should prevent the Duke of Albany from proceeding to Scotland. John, Duke of Albany, was the son of Duke Alexander, who had tried to supplant his brother James III in Scotland and had been driven into exile in France. There his son had been brought up and was now living, a French man in birth and feeling, but next heir to the crown of Scotland after the two children of James the Fourth. For this reason the Scottish people desired his coming. Immediately after the Battle of Flodden, it is true, the widowed Queen Margaret was recognised, under her late husband's will, as regent for her infant son James V but in this she was evidently intended to be controlled by a council, and even then Albany's presence was desired. But Louis XII would not allow him to leave France. It was only natural, however, that Francis I should refuse to give any pleasure to detain him, and events in Scotland, meanwhile, had certainly made his going thither more desirable. For Margaret, after giving birth to a posthumous child, Alexander, Duke of Ross, though he speedily married young Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus, and thereby made herself a partisan among the opposing factions of the Scotch nobility. She was considered to have by this act forfeited both the regency and the control of her children, and the council, August 26, 1514, were unanimous that Albany should be called in to assume the government. Margaret's position became intolerable and in November she wrote to Henry from Stirling, where she had shut herself up with Angus, to send forces by sea and land for her deliverance. The country was indeed full of feuds and conspiracies, 
but Henry's treaties with France forbade open interference with Scotland, and he advised his sister to escape to England instead, and bring her husband and her children with her. This, however, was not to be easily effected, even had it been desired by Margaret herself, which at first was very likely not the case. Albany arrived in Scotland in May 1515, and being afterwards confirmed as governor by the Scottish Parliament, was quite resolved on obtaining possession of the children. To this end, a deputation of Scotch lords approached the Queen at Stirling, but they were compelled to deliver their message outside the gates, the portcullis being dropped. The castle was besieged, and Albany himself appeared before it on August the 4th with formidable artillery. Margaret, deserted by her friends, put the keys of the castle into the young king's hands, and delivered both him and his brother to the duke. Next month, by means of skilful arrangements made for her by Lord Darker, she contrived to escape to Harbottle in Northumberland, where on October 7th she was delivered of a daughter, Margaret Douglas, afterwards the mother of Lord Darnley. Here the Queen was obliged to remain for the winter, removing no further than Morpeth in November, as her confinement had been followed by a long illness, during which the news of her second son's death at Stirling was for a time concealed from her, and she only visited her brother's court in the following spring. Meanwhile, the influence of Henry VIII at Rome had procured for Wolsey the title of Cardinal, which was bestowed upon him by Leo X on September 10th. On December 24th following, the King appointed him Lord Chancellor, and ambassadors noted that the whole power of the state appeared to be lodged in him. The King, indeed, reposed very complete confidence in him, but always required frequent conferences with him as to the aims and methods of policy, and a cardinal always found it necessary to carry out the objects of a very intelligent master, whether he quite approved of them himself or not. Henry VIII might hunt and take his pleasure, but there was no department of the state's business which he failed to look into or which he did not fully command. In September 1515, Francis I won the Battle of Marignano, to the confusion of the Pope and the Spaniards and the Swiss. Nor was the news more acceptable to Henry, who read the letters presented to him by the French ambassador with ill-conceived mortification. He had no reasonable cause, however, for a rupture with France, and Wolsey and Suffolk were eager to assure the ambassador that nothing of the kind was in contemplation. But not only had he just, October 19th, made a new treaty, though a defensive one only, Ferdinand of Aragon, but he had also been listening with interest to a secretary of Maximilian, Sophosa, Duke of Milan, who urged him to league with the Swiss for the expulsion of the French from Italy, and Wolsey had already dispatched his very able secretary, Richard Pace, on a secret mission to hire Swiss mercenaries for this purpose, throwing out a hint that their efforts were likely to be seconded by another English invasion of France. Unluckily, even before Pace had set out, not only had the Swiss been decisively defeated at Marignano, but Milan had opened its gates to the victors, and the Duke, taken prisoner, 
had resigned his duchy for a French pension, but the plan was not dropped. The emperor conferred the title of Duke of Milan on Francis Savosa, brother of Maximilian. It was arranged that the Swiss were to serve the emperor and to be paid by England. But a further change very soon took place in the situation. In January 1516, Ferdinand of Aragon died, and the young Prince Charles was in Flanders proclaimed King of Castile. It was desirable, and became more and more so as time went on, that he should leave the Netherlands for his new dominions, but there were many difficulties to compose. His council leaned to France, and the Holy League had not much prospect of survival without Spain. England, however, clung to her former policy, and as it seemed at first with every prospect of success, the French were driven into Milan. It was fought that they could not keep the city against the Emperor, who had come down from Trent and joined the Swiss with a view to attacking them. But when almost at the gates of the city on Easter Monday, March 24th, he suddenly changed his mind, refused to advance further, and presently withdrew once more across the Adder towards Germany, alleging the most frivolous excuses to Pace and the English ambassador, Wingfield. Whether he was discontented at not having received English money, he had actually received French money, is uncertain. The Swiss would have gone on without him, but their leaders fell out among themselves, and the whole enterprise was ruined. Still, by Wolsey's policy, the Swiss were kept in pay, and the Emperor was prevented for a time from coming to an understanding with France. Conscious of his debts to England, Maximilian gravely offered to invest King Henry with the Dukedom of Milan, and even to resign the Empire itself in his favour. Henry was not much taken with these offers, but thought it more important that the Emperor should come down to Flanders and correct the French leanings of his grandson's counsellors, or he might come on to Calais, where in that case Henry would meet him. The suggestion was agreeable to Maximilian, as it offered a pretext for new demands on Henry's purse for travelling expenses. He delayed the journey, however, for some time, while Charles and his counsellors concluded a treaty with France at Noyon, on August 13th with the object of settling questions about Narvaez and Naples, so as to let the young prince go to Spain with comfort. This was quite disastrous to the policy of England and to the manifest interests of Maximilian, and had a bad effect upon the Swiss. But Maximilian required further aid from England to prevent Verona falling into the hands of the Venetians. It was apparently with this object, mainly, that he dispatched Matthias Shiner, Cardinal of Zion, into England in October, though there were no doubt more specious pretexts. For notwithstanding the Treaty of Noyon, even Charles' counsellors admitted the danger of Francis becoming supreme in Italy and putting pressure on the Pope. The Cardinal of Zion conferred with them on the way to England, and a league for the defence of the Church was concluded in London October 29th between England, the Emperor and Spain. But the Emperor was still called on to perform his promise, and being yet far from the Low Countries, he continually required golden arguments to make him advance further. He reached 
Hagenau in Elas in the beginning of December, and the Cardinal of Zion, who joined him there on his return from England, continued the begging on his behalf, writing to Wolsey that Charles' counsellors were seriously alarmed at his reproach. This was a gross falsehood, for shameful to say at this very time the Emperor, by his commissioners at Brussels, had accepted the Treaty of Nyon, and had given his oath to observe it. Moreover, he had put Verona into the hands of the King of Castile, who he pretended could keep it better than himself. But Charles merely handed it over by compact to the French, to be restored by them to the Venetians. So in fact, all the King's money bestowed on Maximilian was lost, but under Wolsey's guidance, large compensation was obtained ere long. No change was made in external policy, the emperor was treated still as a friend, till he fell into suspicion with other allies, and lost all influence in Europe, while on the other hand, England was sought by all parties for the sake of her full coffers. Charles of Castile felt the need of her to advance money to him for his voyage to Spain, and while Henry was supposed to be still bent on doing France all the mischief in his power, very secret negotiations began between France and England, first for the restoration of Tournay, and ultimately, before the world knew, for a cordial alliance of which more will be said presently. Meanwhile, the Queen had given birth in February to a daughter named Mary, who was afterwards Queen of England, and in May, Margaret, Queen of Scotland, came to her brother's court at Greenwich, her stay in England gave Henry very great power in dealing with the northern kingdom. Even at Harbottle and Morpeth, she had fallen under the power of Lord Darker, a great master of intrigue, who understood the king's general objects and first induced her to prefer demands, which were refused by the Scotch lords, then later to sign a bill of complaints against Albany, in which it was even insinuated that the king was not safe in his hands, and that the death of the king's younger brother was probably due to the duke. This, however, was only a state paper to be used when convenient, for she was at that very time corresponding with Albany, who at her request liberated her friends from prison, agreed to give up her dowry, and showed every desire to satisfy her. Yet, on June 1st, 1516, Henry wrote to the Scotch lords a formal demand for Albany's removal, but he was met by an absolute refusal on July 4th. Albany, however, was really desirous to revisit France, and to this end he made a treaty with Wolsey on July 24th, arranged for a prolongation of the truce and a settlement of Margaret's demands, and proposed to pass through England on his way, and there conclude a perpetual peace. At a later date he obtained an unwilling permission from the Scotch Parliament to return to France for a time, but the visit to England had to be abandoned. He returned to France in June 1517, and in the course of the same month Margaret re-entered Scotland, having left London on May 16th. Little more than a fortnight before her departure occurred the formidable riot of the London Apprentices called Evil May Day. It arose out of a conspiracy against foreigners, 
on whose houses a general attack was made during the night of April 30th. This outbreak was not unexpected, but the civic authorities, in spite of a serious warning from Wolsey, who had to protect his own house at Westminster with a guard and artillery, failed to take adequate steps to prevent it. Troops were dispatched into the city by various routes, and cannon were used to quell the disturbance. 278 citizens were taken prisoners, of whom 60 were hanged in different parts of the city, and some beheaded and quartered, the offence being counted treason on account of the king's amnesty with foreign princes. The rest were pardoned at the intercession of the queen and Wolsey. Another public calamity which speedily followed was the severe outbreak of the sweating sickness, an epidemic which thirst made notable ravages in England immediately after the accession of Henry the Seventh, 1485. Wolsey was dangerously ill of it, and the court was obliged, both this year and the year following, 1518, to draw from the neighbourhood of London for fear of the infection. Early in 1517, a conspiracy to poison Pope Leo X was discovered at Rome, in which some cardinals were implicated, among others Cardinal Adrian de Corneto, the papal collector in England, who held the Bishop Prick of Bath and Wells, originally bestowed upon him by King Henry VII. He exercised his office of collector by deputy, and his sub-collector, the celebrated Polydor Virgo, had already been imprisoned by Wolsey for an intrigue, and had only been released at the Pope's urgent intercession. Leo seems to have been equally anxious to spare Adrian himself the full penalty of his guilt, but Henry insisted that he should be deprived alike of his cardinalitate and of his English bishop, intending that the latter should be bestowed on Wolsey, in commendum, to be held along with the Archbishop Prick of York. The Pope put off the deprivation as long as possible. Both this and another concession he ultimately consented to make in order to advance a project of his own. For in March 1517, the Lateran Council, taking advantage of the general peace in Europe, had proposed a crusade against the Turk, and Leo had before the year was out already sent legates to some countries to promote it. Henry VIII, however, objected that it was unusual to admit a foreign legate in England, but said that he would waive the objection if Wolsey also were made legate de la Terre at the same time. A joint legatine commission was accordingly issued by Leo in May 1518 to Cardinal Campego and to Wolsey, whereupon the former proceeded as far as Calais. But Cardinal Adrian was not yet deprived of his bishopric, and powerful intercession was used in his behalf. At Calais, therefore, Campego had to remain some weeks, until certain intelligence was received of Adrian's deprivation, when he was conducted across the Channel in July, and received with great magnificence in London. Nothing came indeed of the expedition against the Turk, the selfishness of princes and the double views of the popes themselves always interfered with such projects, but the proposal for general peace had for some time formed an admirable blind for negotiations, which had been secretly in progress for a special alliance between England and France. 
These arose out of private communications concerning tyranny, thus seemingly about ecclesiastical jurisdiction, for the French bishop always maintained his claim against Wolsey, afterwards about the town itself, which the French were anxious to recover. No one yet knew what was going on, when in July 1518 a protocol was signed by Wolsey and the French ambassador Villeroy for the surrender of the city and for the future marriage of the Princess Mary to the Dauphin, born in February of that same year. A magnificent embassy then came over in September and was received by the king in the presence of Cardinal Campego. A treaty of universal peace, as it was called, was signed in London by the French ambassadors and the English Privy Council on October 2nd. And on the next day, the king and the ambassadors swore to it at St Paul's. It was, professedly, a treaty between Leo X, Maximilian Francis I, Charles of Spain, and Henry VIII, for mutual defence against invasion, but it was only signed at present by representatives of England and France, time being given to the Pope and the others to confirm it. This in itself, however, made it first of all a closer alliance with France, and two days later further treaties were signed for the marriage, for the surrender of Torigny, and for the settlement of questions without depredations. Bonnevay, the head of the French embassy, then as proxy for the Dauphin, formally married Mary at Greenwich on October 5th, and finally on the 8th another treaty was signed for an interview between the French and English kings, take place at Sandingfield near Calais before April 1st of the following year. Charles of Castile did not like this treaty, but it was for his own interest to confirm it, and he did so in Spain. Thus it formed a fair beginning for a European settlement, and virtually took Campeggio's mission out of his hands, making England the negotiator of the general peace, and consequently the arbiter of continental differences. To England, however, the great immediate advantage was, in the first place, that France was willing to buy her friendship by means of an understanding that Albany must be kept from returning to Scotland for the payment of 600,000 crowns for the surrender of Torinay, a city which had been very expensive to keep and a secure which the king had, in 1515, began to build a citadel. Wolsey, too, surrendered his ineffectual claims in the bishopric, whose revenues he had never been able to draw, for a pension of 12,000 livres. Early in the next year, 1519, the Emperor Maximilian died, January 12th. Charles of Spain and Francis I of France immediately became candidates for the succession, and perhaps these events had their share in putting off the interview between the kings of France and England. But in May, Henry himself became a third competitor, sending Pace, now his own secretary instead of Wolsey's, to Germany, to suggest in secret objections to both the other candidates, and first win the electors in his favour. It was a hopeless project, which Wolsey certainly promoted against his own better judgment, because he saw his master set upon it. Moreover, it was a piece of double dealing towards Francis, whose candidature Henry had promised to support, 
and Francis found it out, but he did not let the fact disturb the new amity. Charles was elected emperor, June 28th. This brings us to the threshold of a new epoch, to be treated of in a later volume. During the latter part of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, the constant tendency had been for every kingdom of Europe to consolidate itself and bring feudal lordships into fuller subjection to the supreme ruler. France felt this necessity most in order to repel the English invader. England herself was made to feed it by the Wars of the Roses. Spain came together under Ferdinand and Isabel and drove out the Moors. The House of Burgundy, with its rich inheritance in the Netherlands, was a dangerous neighbour to France and a natural ally of England. But ending in a female, it became joined with the House of Austria, which had already attained to the empire, while striving to secure it as a dynastic inheritance. The spirit of the times moved even to the papacy, whose territorial claims in Italy, Julius II advanced by a warfare much more earthly than spiritual. The spirit of the times in political matters had been appreciated by Sir Thomas More, whose utopia is described elsewhere in this volume as a classic product of an age of discovery. Such it was in its most striking aspect, but nonetheless was it in some parts a most faithful transcript of the Machiavellian politics pursued by the princes of Europe and not least by the kings of England. In Moore's ideal island, inhabited by intelligent pagans, we find precisely those arts practised which were practised in the courts of Christian Europe, while kingdoms were advancing, a domestic peace and security should have found a firmer basis. The rulers of Christendom were cheating each other, engaging in unjust wars, or like England, paying Swiss mercenaries to fight without declaring themselves belligerents. Henry VII had watched continental politics without allowing himself to be drawn into continental wars. It was otherwise with Henry VIII, young and popular, and seated on a throne as secure as his father's was unstable. To him the glories of war had their attractions, and the practices of the utopians in the conduct of it were not abhorrent. Such things were merely in the way of statementship. When the king was satisfied, there was no one to call him to account. Yet it was a highly polished age. Many ideas of former days no doubt had lost their hold. Chivalry had decayed. The talk of crusades against the Turk had become a mockery. The Eastern Empire had passed away. And the pretensions of the Western Empire had become more unreal than ever. The civilization had recovered from the disorders of papal schisms into Nicene Wars and socialistic insurrections. There was marked progress in art and letters, first in Italy, then over the continent of Europe, and if in England there was little art, and young vernacular literature seemed to have languished since Chaucer's day, yet this country was scarcely behind other nations in cherishing the revived study of the classics. Long before the close of the 15th century, English monks, like Prior Selinug of Canterbury, had brought Greek scholarship home from Italian universities. Erasmus himself, who first came to England in 1497, 
of 1498, was set to teach Greek at Cambridge in 1510, found the country a special abode of scholarship. Moore, Collett, Groshin and Lineker were the men in whom this culture was most conspicuous. And Archbishop Warham and Bishop Fisher were the leading patrons of learning. The people too were polished in their manners. English urbanity struck even a Venetian who visited the country about the year 1500. But Erasmus found in English social intercourse something more than mere urbanity. Did you but know the endowments of Britain, he writes to his poetical friend, Andrelius, you would run hither with winged feet, and if the gout stopped you, you would wish yourself a Daedalus, to mention one thing out of many, though I hear nymphs of divine beauty, gentle and kind, whom you may well prefer to your Camonet. Moreover, there is a fashion never sufficiently commended. Wherever you go, you are received by every one with kisses. When you take leave, you are dismissed with kisses. You return, kisses again are renewed. People come to you and kisses are offered. They take their leave and kisses again distributed. Wherever you meet, there are kisses in abundance. In short, wherever you move, all things are charged with kisses. And forced us, if you once tasted how sweet and fragrant they are, you would be glad to sojourn in England, not for ten years only like Solon, but to your dying day. Such was English social life before the days of Puritanism. But it must be said, this pleasant freedom of manners was accompanied by much laxity with regard to social ties. Our Venetian visitor found side by side of English courtesy an absence of domestic affection was seen to him altogether amazing. With licentiousness he saw instances in this country, but none of a man in love. And though English men kept jealous guard over their wives, offences against married life could always among them in the end be condoned for money. For their children they seemed to have no affection, sending them out to service in other homes as soon as they reached the age of seven, or nine at the utmost, in order that they might learn manners. These observations are fully confirmed by the evidence of the Paston letters, where, among other things, we read of a young lady of twenty, in a respectable family, being repeatedly beaten, and having her head broken in two or three places at a time, so that she was inclined to marry an elderly and ill-favoured suitor to escape from her mother's tyranny. This painful absence of natural feeling was largely owing to the feudal system of wardships, by which heirs under age were disposed of in marriage without their own consent, and that union which lays the foundation of all social life was commonly made a matter of bargain and sale. It was anything but an ideal condition of society, yet the nation was polite, well-ordered, and on the whole very submissive to authority. The people loved their king, and even when their affection came to be sorely tried, honoured him with respectful obedience, which later generations found it impossible to pay to his successors. End of section 48